morning again. I just want to thank everyone for being here and celebrating this Lord's Day with us. I'm so excited to be a part of a group here that is just so dedicated to sharing God's word together, to praising him and encouraging each other this morning. As nice as the holidays were, Elaine and I are just so excited to be home with you all, joining in the work and the worship here. If you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Before we read this passage, I want to remember a few things. Because we're really jumping off in the middle of a story here, and I don't have time to read the entire book of Exodus with you today. But here, the nation of Israel were not a nation yet, at least not in the way that we think of them. The nation of Israel is just a group of slaves in Egypt. And they had been for a really, really long time. 430 years, the book of Exodus says. But God, through Moses, Aaron, and the first nine plagues, got the children of Israel ready to exit Egypt and become a nation of people wholly devoted to him. And so as we pick up here in Exodus chapter 12, with God about to deliver the 10th and final plague, the one that will finally set his people free after hundreds of years of oppression and years of crying out to him. Before that, he gives this commandment for a celebration that we know as the Passover. And as we go through we'll notice a few of these themes that come up in this chapter about the Passover. And we won't focus on any of them now. We'll come back to them in the end. But I want you to be thinking about what is the significance of the Passover? In other words, why in this time that's so critical for Israel, where they're about to be freed, they're about to celebrate this deliverance from God, Why are we stopping all that momentum in the story to talk about a feast? Why are we talking about a celebration right now? And we'll talk about that some as we go. So if you would, let's just start in Exodus chapter 12 and we'll read the first six verses together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt... This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the father's household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each, uh, according to what each can eat, you shall make the count of for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And we'll stop there for now. So the first thing I want to just note is that the 
first six verses about this Passover commandment, we see a strong emphasis on the lamb, both on the body of the lamb and as we'll see, the blood of the lamb. I don't want to take too much time to say anything about this now because we'll talk about it a lot later, but it will be important as we go on. So I just want you to make a mental note of that. So if you would pick up back here in verse 7 and read, I don't know, we'll read a few verses. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and legs and its inner parts. Oh, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And we'll stop there. I think the one thing that really stands out to me in these verses is that the Israelites were to celebrate this feast dressed and ready to go. They're even supposed to eat the meal in haste, which wouldn't be a very big challenge for some of us. But I want you to ask yourself as you read that, why should the Israelites be in haste, right? I mean, it's been, it's been 430 years. What's 10, 15, 20 more minutes? Why would they want to rush this celebration? I think a lot of us, when we think about celebrations and feast days, and we think about some of these parties, especially in some of the things that we read about in the Old Testament that were kind of more common in the ancient world, these are long events. They're days long most of the time. These feasts could last for weeks at a time. Why would this very special celebration commanded by God be observed in haste? Why would they rush it? I think it's deeper than simply just that God told them to do it, even though that's true. I want to think about the Israelite situation for a second. The Israelites are stranded in a land that isn't theirs. They're surrounded by a people that aren't them and a people that oppresses them. They're slaves. And it's a sorry situation. But God has promised them a land. A land that will be theirs, where they won't have to live in slavery. A land where they will be his people and he will be their God. That's what they have to look forward to. For years, they've been crying out to God. And through the book of Exodus, we've seen Pharaoh tell them, you can go. No, wait, I'm just kidding. You can't actually go. And they know that God is going to free them. But can you imagine? It had to feel so far away. 
And so they're just kind of waiting for God to give them the signal. When can we finally leave? When will all of this be over? When can we go home? And finally, in the Passover, in this 10th plague, God says, now's the time. You're going home to the promised land. And to remind them of all of this, all this that they've been through and how important this moment is, they celebrate the feast in a manner like they're ready to go home. And I find that to be an amazing picture. To celebrate this feast like they're ready to go. Pick up back with me in verse 14. And we'll read through verse 20. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the, first, on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. And if anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread." And what really strikes me in these verses is the sort of severity of the Passover ceremony. I mean, it's definitely a joyous celebration, to be sure. But this ceremony was supposed to be observed every year, and every letter of every word of the commandment was to be followed every single time. It is a celebration, but it's a serious celebration. The people of Israel are even supposed to keep watch on each other to make sure that they live their lives in a way that did not violate the commandments of this feast. And there's serious consequences for not following the commandments of the feast. If you want to finish reading the story with me, we'll read verses 21 through 28. We read this earlier, but I think it's worth reading again. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 28. Then Moses called all the, all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
You shall observe this as a right and as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Here in verses 21 through 27, we see that one of the main purposes of the Passover and why this celebration is so important. Why does God care so much about a feast, about a, a meal? Why is all of this so serious? And in part, the celebration and the ceremony of the Passover was so that future generations would hear the story of how God blessed his people generations ago. They would hear this through the ceremony of the Passover, through the word of mouth, through the celebration itself. The ceremony became a regular reminder of God's blessings and his plan to free his people from the bondage of slavery. The Passover reminded Israel of who God is and what he did for them. And in verse 28, we simply see that the people did all these things that God commanded them. And we know the rest of the story. We know that as the chapter goes on, the people of Israel are freed by God. And they're taken out of slavery in Egypt. In large part through this Passover ceremony. God saw the blood of the lamb and his people obeying him. And they were spared and they were delivered. And the Egyptians were not. And then Israel was freed. They were delivered by God from their slavery. And that's the story of the Passover. I know that we looked a lot of themes and threads there. And I promise we'll get to them eventually. But first, I want to see where some of these things, I think, really take their shape. And that is in one of the most, uh, the most famous observation of the Passover, of this feast ever. And that is Jesus' last supper on earth, or as the Christians know it, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Because I think as we go through the account of the Lord's Supper, the parallels between the Passover and the Lord's Supper will become crystal clear and I think we can use these parallels to see where we fit into the Passover story as a whole. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. There's a lot of different places that we could read about the Lord's Supper. But for the sake of our lesson this morning, we'll stick mostly here in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we come to this passage, we know that Jesus is near the very end of his mortal earthly ministry. 
And as he's finishing his last few tasks before his crucifixion, as a sort of preparation, which I'm sure that Mr. Skip is going to talk about plenty in his class, so I won't dote on it too much. Jesus comes to this point. And one of the tasks that he does is what we call this Last Supper, which is actually one of these ceremony feast meals eaten with the disciples. And so if you want to read with me in Matthew chapter 26, we'll just start in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And as they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, is it I, Lord? He said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Jesus, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of it again. And uh, I, will, I will not drink of the, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I'll stop there. First off, I think that one clear mark between the Israelite Passover and the Christian's Lord's Supper is the emphasis on the consumption of the lamb. In the first six or so verses of Exodus chapter 12, we see that the Israelite Passover ceremony is centered around eating the flesh of the sacrificial lamb. And here in Matthew 26, we see a similar picture. As Jesus is instituting his ceremony, he centers it around eating his body. And as we know, the common motif that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God. But it's more than just the flesh, because one striking thing that the Israelites were told in the chapter is to put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and on the lintel of their houses. Because, of course, the Jews were not allowed to eat blood. Leviticus 17, 14 says, for the life of every creature is in the blood. It's blood, it's his life. Therefore, I've said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for every for the life of every creature is in its blood and whoever eats it shall be cut off. So the Israelites weren't allowed to eat the blood. Instead, God told them to paint this blood on the doorposts and lintels of their houses and that he would see it. He would see the blood of the lamb and spare their firstborn. Here in Matthew, this idea is turned on its head. Jesus has provided his blood for us 
on the cross. And if we enter into a life with him, God sees the blood of the lamb. But it's not the blood of the lamb on our house, on our doorposts that God sees. But it's Jesus' blood, the blood that was shed on the cross that God sees and passes over us in the end. So then why do we drink the blood of our Passover meal? Why does Jesus emphasize that in his supper, his disciples are to drink his blood? And I think that it comes back to the idea that we see in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 27. When all the Israelites were to do this Passover meal every year for generations. And we ask why? God had already passed over them. He spared their firstborn. He'd taken them to the promised land. Why would they still keep the Passover? What's the point? And so that the people could remind themselves that it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And I think that there's a very similar picture in the Lord's Supper. Because in Luke chapter 19, Luke 19 tells us that we partake of this Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus and what he did for us. Here every Sunday, we are commanded to eat the bread and drink the cup. Why? So that when we see the blood, we are reminded that is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he will pass over my sins on the judgment day because of this blood. But he won't pass over everyone's sins. Then the blood of Jesus' ceremony, the blood that we drink is in part so that we can remember that God will pass over us because of that same blood. That it is now in us through Jesus. And just as the Passover ceremony of Exodus 12 becomes a regular reminder to the people of Israel that their perfect and loving God freed them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt... Our ceremony, the Lord's Supper, is a weekly reminder that that same perfect and loving God that freed the Israelites and his people from the bondage of sin, he he freed us from the bondage of sin and death. And that while it is a physical ceremony, it's, it's a serious ceremony and it reflects the beautiful, much larger spiritual truth. The ceremony is about the story of our salvation, about God's love, God's mercy, God's deliverance brought before us here in a weekly reminder. But just like in Exodus chapter 12, verse 28, that hinges on God's people doing what he commands. So as we get into the applications this morning, we have to realize that although the Passover is a beautiful picture, both in the Old Testament and in the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, it is still on us as God's people on this earth to fulfill his words. We must celebrate his death, both by coming to service every first day of the week and eating the body of this perfect lamb and drinking his blood, 
but also by living a life dedicated to God so that he will see Jesus' blood, the blood of the perfect lamb in us and in our lives, and he will pass over our sins. But secondly, we need to realize the severity of our slavery to sin. Because the Passover was a severe ceremony. They took it very seriously. There were large punishments for not following the, uh, the ceremony of the Passover to a T. To be freed from the bondage of physical slavery in Egypt, it came at the cost of the dedication of every firstborn child in Israel. And the, and the Passover ceremony was a reminder of that. It was a celebration, yes, but it was a reminder of that dedication to God. That was a part of the covenant that Israel had with God. And how much more in our covenant? Because in our covenant, God has so graciously set us free from the horrible bondage of our own spiritual slavery, our slavery to sin. And the price for that freedom was not our firstborn, as the case with Israel, But this time the sacrifice was God's own firstborn, the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. And our meal, the Lord's Supper, is a reminder to us of how dire of a situation that we were in when we are slaves to sin. And the only way out of that slavery was the perfect son of God dying for us as our lamb. And the only way that that slavery was freed was through God's own gift. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of the blood that was shed for us. And that is why as the Israelites observe the Passover in a solemn and serious manner, we as the church observe the meal of our Passover, the meal of our Lord's Supper in a very solemn manner as well. We have the same mix of emotions of the misery of awful bondage combined with the seriousness of the sacrifice mixed with the great joy of being delivered by God combined with the fear of the awesome power of our God and the love that he showed us in his sacrifice by creating a plan to free his people. Those are the wonderful mix of feelings that are contained in the Passover. And those are some of the same exact feelings that we should be feeling every week as we partake in this Lord's Supper. Because that is what our God did for us. Our God freed us at great cost to himself. But as we continue to think about how this lesson applies to us, I think the most powerful thing and the thing I want to camp out on as we finish is... Don't go back to Egypt. Because I think that that's one of the things that amazes me about this story. Because if you you remember in Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 through 13, the Israelites were supposed to eat the Passover meal in haste. As a reminder that God pulled them out of Egypt from a land of bondage to his promised land for them. And it's a beautiful thing, the idea of God saving his people, God delivering his people. A thing very much worth getting excited about. So how ridiculous would it be 
for the Israelites who used to be slaves and were made a nation dedicated to God to want to go back to not being a nation at all, to want to go back to a life of slavery in Egypt. We would say that's crazy. And yet... What we see over and over again in the Old Testament, basically from the moment that the children of Israel left Egypt, anytime things get tough, the people of Israel try to go back to Egypt instead of doing things God's way. If you want to turn with me to Numbers chapter 14, in Numbers chapter 14, in the first four verses, we see that as the spies give the ten, if the ten spies give the bad report, it says, then all the congregation of Israel raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Which, by the way, repeats a very similar cry that they had in Exodus chapter 16. Just four chapters after the Passover and after their deliverance. Or you could say, what about Deuteronomy chapter 17, where God tells Israel, someday you're going to have kings, but I have some instructions for your future king. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 15 through 17, he says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So among the other instructions for the kings, the kings had to war be warned not to go back to Egypt, not to rely on Egypt for their military prowess, for their horses, for their chariots we'll see in some other places. But what happened? Because King Hezekiah did go back to Egypt for horses and chariots in 2 Kings chapter 18 through 20. And Isaiah and the other prophets said, you know, don't do that. He spends all of chapters 30 and 31 of Isaiah saying how stupid it is to abandon trust in God for Egypt when God is the one who brought you out of Egypt in the first place. But it didn't work. Hezekiah chose Egypt over God anyway. And he paid the price for it. And then in Jeremiah chapter 42, at the end of the independent nation of Judah, Jeremiah again has to plead with the Jews as Babylon is approaching. Just accept your punishment. Don't cling to the false hope of Egypt. But as we know, a faction of the Jews did flee to Egypt and they took Jeremiah with them. Time and time again, God told Israel, rely on me. I am the God who saved you from a life of slavery in Egypt. And instead, the Israelites chose to rely on the very people that oppressed them in the first place. The very people that they had to be saved from. And they went back to Egypt. But the question is, why would they want to go back? You ever think about that? 
Because Egypt was a, it was a terrible place for them. It was a place of slavery and depression. But now they're a new, dedicated nation to God. They're free. Why would the Israelites want to go back? Isaiah chapter 30 and 31 gives us some insight into that. If you want to read with me, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. They carry out a plan, but not mine. And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. If you want to just turn a couple of pages over, we'll read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 31 as well. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will perish together. What insight does this give us into Israel's mindset? Isaiah says uh, Israel is seeking shelter. They're seeking protection. That's why they choose Israel. Egypt. They think that Egypt is going to save them from their disaster and punishment. You see, Egypt gives the illusion of choice to Israel. They have the illusion of power. Israel thought they didn't need to listen to God, the same God that delivered them from slavery. Why? Because Egypt would slave them. And Israel thought that they had made a choice in Egypt that would bring them comfort and deliverance. The same comfort and deliverance that God had promised them. But instead, they chose their slavery as an illusion to deliver them. And so the lesson for us is that we have to learn from Israel. We cannot go back to Egypt. And maybe you guys are saying, you know, of all the things I'm tempted by, Gavin... Buying horses from Egypt isn't exactly one of them. I'm not exactly tempted to go rely on the government of Egypt. But I want to think for a second about how this applies to us. And I think that the key lies in what this celebration represents. Have we spent all morning talking about how the Passover for the Jews symbolized God bringing them up out of their slavery to Egypt? And our Lord's Supper symbolizes the same thing. God bringing us up out of our slavery to sin. Sin is our Egypt. God has brought us out of our slavery to sin. If you would, let's finish in Romans chapter 6. A chapter that we all need to read a little bit more, but we'll start in verse 1. 
Romans chapter six, verse one. What does Paul say about going back to Egypt? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Skip down to verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And then to verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit, the fruit, gets, the fruit you get leads to sanctification at its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As the, as the Israelites ate their Passover in haste, ready to go to the promised land, we must be ready to go to our promised land. I don't know. I, I don't think we've sang it very much since I've been here, but I grew up in a small country church that every other Sunday sang this world is not my home. Like, like almost every other Sunday. And we'd sing that all the time. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. But how often do we actually live like it? Not quite as often. Because we get distracted by this world. And it's easy to do. And we choose because we think we have choice to deliver ourselves. We choose our sin. This world, our very, our very slaveholder to deliver us because we think it gives us power. We think that we have control over the situation. And so we choose death and slavery instead of God and his free gift of life. And if you only get one thing from this lesson, let it be this. God has set us free from our slavery. And just like he called the Israelites to rely on him, who delivered him or who, de who delivered them from slavery, from the false hope of their Egyptian oppressors. We must choose to not go back to Egypt. Don't go back to living your life as a slave to sin. Be ready for our calling to the promised land where God will pass over our sins for the final time. Rely on God. And so the story of the Passover is the story of God's deliverance, God's mercy. And that parallels our own Lord's Supper as a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice, a reminder of God's power, God's love, and our freedom from our slavery to sin. It's an important reminder. Do not take it for granted. It may be that you have never left Egypt, that you are still a slave to sin right now. You got to leave that life behind. God is ready to free you, to deliver you from your slavery. Accept the blood of the lamb and be baptized into his death and be freed this morning, right now. Or maybe you did. You have already chosen God. You have left your slavery to sin. You have lived a life dedicated as a child of his. But you've gone right back to Egypt. Right back to the chains of your oppressor of sin. 
I ask that you come back to God. Leave your bondage of sin again, whose wages are death, and return to God, because his gift is eternal life. Let this Sunday, let this Lord's Supper that we took, this sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, remind you that God will pass over the sins of his people on the judgment day because of the blood of Jesus Christ, but he will not pass over the sins of those who are living in slavery. If this morning you need to be baptized or you need the prayers of the church, please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.